Fantastic. I'll just pray briefly before um, I preach. Lord, be in our hearts and our minds and open them to your word and be with me as I speak. I pray that all that I say will be of you, that I leave nothing out that should be said and that I do not say anything that is not of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jude, for reading so well for us. That was lovely. How many of you know the 1969 film, The Italian Job? Can we have a quick show of hands? Unsurprisingly, slightly better show of hands than the first service, perhaps. Um, You're probably all thinking, why on earth is Tim talking about a... uh, a uh, Cops and Robbers movie in the middle of his sermon. Um, For those of you who don't know the film, um, it's about a uh, group of British crooks who go to Italy um, to to rob a bank uh, and take away the gold bullion. Um, and there are some fantastic car chases that, in, uh, that, uh, that permeate the film with lots of minis. And then the, the, the denouement, the, the end of the film, um, comes with all of the crooks making their getaway, um, slightly questionably in a large bus. I'm not sure what they, what they were really thinking of in terms of speed. Um, but the bus hairs round the mountain passes and the driver loses control. And the last scene of the film has the bus teetering on the edge of a precipice like that. And at one end of the bus, you've got all the crooks, and at the other end of the bus, you've got all the gold bars, and no one dares move. One false move, that over the precipice, or the gold goes over the precipice. No one knows what's going to happen. And Michael Caine pipes up, with apologies for the accent, Hang on a minute, lads. I've got a great idea. And then you get the credits. Maybe it's not immediately obvious what the link between that and the parable that we've just heard is. But I would suggest there is a link, and this is what it is. In both cases, we don't know how the story ends. In the Italian job, the bus teeters on the precipice. In the parable, Jesus, I believe, deliberately avoids a definitive ending. Why? Well, I think we're given a clue, not in the parable itself that we've just read, but at the very start of Luke chapter 11. And for those of you who were here last week um, to hear Lee stealing my thunder, um, you'll recall that he spoke especially about the two parables that immediately precede this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And one area that Lee focused on was the audience for, um, for this, this particular set of three parables. And um, first of all, uh, 
Luke mentions that uh, Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and by sinners. Um, But he also notes that there are Pharisees present. There's a group of Pharisees who were complaining about the fact that Jesus was hanging out with all of these people who who weren't exactly um, the sort of people who a teacher, a religious man, should be spending his time with. So Luke tells us that Jesus is directing all three of these parables to the Pharisees. And so at the end of today's parable, the third parable, Jesus very deliberately, I think, doesn't tie things up nicely with a little bow. The father in the story concludes his his speech to his older son. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours who was dead and is alive again was lost and is found. But we've got no idea what happens next. We don't know what the older brother does. We don't know whether he storms off in a huff, whether he has a reconciliation with the father and his younger brother and goes into the house and has a great time at the party. Luke just doesn't tell us. Today's story is, of course, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. But I believe that that, that, doesn't, that that sells it short a bit. Firstly, although he doesn't feature until the second half of the parable, the character of the older son, I think, is just as important as the younger son. Perhaps even as more so. Um, more so. Um, maybe he gets less of the press, if you like, because he just has a chat with his dad, whereas the younger son goes off and does all these superficially glamorous things, um, appears in lots of paintings. Um, you know, artists have got lots of, lots of material to play with with the younger son, um, rather less with the older one, perhaps. Um, but I think from Jesus' point of view, the older son is just as important. And of course, the figure of the father is absolutely central to the parable as well and to Jesus' message within it. So all three of the characters have got something important to say to us. And so I think it's best to call the parable the parable of the loving father and the two brothers. And lots and lots, of course, has been written about this parable over the centuries. Um, I can't go into all of the depth now, but if you want to to go digging a bit more, and I draw on this a bit in what I'm going to say, have a look at Tim Keller's book, um, The Prodigal God, which is fantastic. Um, It gives some wonderful insights um, into areas of the parable that I'd never previously thought of. So thoroughly recommended. Um, And if you'd like to borrow a copy, I've got one, obviously. Um, So first, on to the younger son. We know um, that his demand for his father to give him his inheritance while he's still alive was completely out of order in those times. It was was almost tantamount to saying that his father had died. Um, Claiming an inheritance while your father is still around was just something that no one would even dream of doing normally. But his father acquiesces to his wish and he gives him his inheritance and he lets him go. I'm, I'm sure we can imagine his, his, his father's heart at that point. It, it must be 
breaking at what his son is doing. And then, of course, he goes off and he loses everything and he goes into a place of absolute despair. And at this appallingly low ebb, he makes a conscious decision to come back to his father. Anything's better than where he is, even being a servant in his father's household. And then we see him coming back home and his father, who probably has been looking out for him every day, looking into the distance, seeing whether he'll come back. His father spots him in the distance and runs towards him and embraces him with joy and with thanksgiving. Um, he, can't, he can't do enough. He, he even cuts off his son when his son is, is making excuses. He's saying, I'm so sorry. And his father is not interested at all. He's just overjoyed to have him back. And he instructs the servants to, to bring the best clothing and the best ring and the best sandals to give him and to give him the best party imaginable. I think the younger son is like many, many people, um, both outside church and maybe even inside churches these days, in that he completely underestimates the, the bounty and the provision and care that comes from his father, just as we so often overlook what our Heavenly Father has for each one of us. And sometimes people who haven't had a Christian upbringing or who have maybe been scarred at some point, they, they have a complete misapprehension of what the God that we know and treasure is like, who he is like. Sometimes people think he's cold or unfeeling or um, full of rules. Uh, And we know that that's just not the case. Maybe people have turned and replaced the true God with lots of of other gods. Gods of materialism, gods of, um, of work, gods maybe of physical beauty, gods of sexual relations, whatever they may be, but not the one true God. Those people are perhaps no different from the younger son in the parable. They go off and and follow things that totally fail to satisfy them. So what more can we say about the father and about the older son? Well, we've seen the father rushing out to welcome the younger son. But he also, and this is something that people um, very often overlook, I think, he also goes out when he hears the older son coming in in a huff from the fields. And he meets him outside the house as well. He goes to greet him. But the older son, we're told, particularly in verse 29, that he's been slaving for his father. He's been out in the fields, not doing that work for his father out of the love of his heart, but because he feels he has to. I wonder maybe what, if we have been part of a church community for a long, long time, 
We've been following Christ for years and years and years, dutifully following the Lord. If we're then joined in our communities by people who maybe have more in common with the younger son, who have lived what we may think of as very unchristian lives for years, what we think then? Do we automatically join with the father like the father in the parable, in celebration and in feasting and in joy at these people's rethinking of their lives, their repentance, literally means rethinking. Or do we sometimes, I wonder, appear rather more like the older brother, thinking we've been faithful for so many years and how come these Johnny-come-latelys are able to Uh, to receive the same from God as each one of us. How come God doesn't, if you like, owe us, who've been faithful more than he owes them? I think it's really challenging to all of us. It maybe seems unjust, but God's justice is different from the world's justice. God's economy is different from the world's economy. And human justice and human economics are not the way in which he works, as we see in this parable. I think Jesus is very clear in his warning to the Pharisees in the parable. And by extension, He's very clear in his warning to us. The older son has spent all of his time while the younger son's been away. He's been working hard for him. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. But Jesus is saying that whilst the younger son at a distance is lost. In a different way, the older son is equally lost. Just because he has been physically close to his father doesn't mean that there's been any emotional or spiritual intimacy between the two of them. And in fact, the complete lack of understanding that the older son has of his father Um, shows itself in in his complaint about never having had a party, even with a goat with his friends. He just doesn't understand that his father has so much more for him, if only he would ask, just as so often perhaps we don't understand just how much God has for us, and we don't ask as well. That's a danger for us too. If we fail to understand the completeness of God's grace in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins and really absorb that into the depths of our being, then there is a risk that we too will act in the way that the older son did, obeying in order that we might um, gain acceptance from our father just as the older son did with his father. But that's nothing more than religion. 
if we want truly to become Christ-like, we must not only repent of the things that we've done wrong, but I think we also need to ask for God's forgiveness for the things that we may have done right, but for the wrong reasons. One of my favourite Christian authors is the American Philip Yancey, who some of you, I'm sure, will know. And he writes in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, this extraordinary but true statement. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us any more, and there is nothing that we can do to make God love us any less. It's precisely a failure to understand this complete grace on the part of the Father, the Father in the story and our Heavenly Father, that's at the root of the lostness of the older son. Of course, it's not a license to go out and do absolutely whatever we want, um, secure in the knowledge that God loves us utterly and we'll all be saved in any case. But it's an expression of the certainty that's at the heart of the gospel, that each one of us is completely accepted by God through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And that because of that and coming out of the enormity of that sacrifice, each one of us wants to do the very best that we can in our lives for Jesus who saved us. So, I come back to the question that I posed at the start. Why did Jesus apparently leave the parable without a neat ending? I believe that it's because it's up to the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing to provide their own ending to the story. How do they respond Do they react like the older brother with whom Jesus is comparing them and continue to condemn the sinners and the tax collectors who are surrounding them and listening to the Lord? Or will they think again and turn back from their lostness to true intimacy with their father? And by extension, to those of us who are followers of Christ already, Jesus is leaving it to those who follow him to find their own, our own, ending to this story. I'm certainly not making any linkage, between, or a one-to-one linkage, between the Pharisees' behaviour, criticising Jesus, and that of a member of this church, or any other church for that matter. And nor am I suggesting that there's a one-to-one relationship between the behaviour of the elder son in the story and that of followers of Jesus either. But what I am doing and what I believe Jesus absolutely is saying in the passage is that he's suggesting there is a risk. If we're not careful, there's a risk that we, as his followers, in the way in which we relate to our Heavenly Father and to our fellow men and women, that we can fall into behaving in ways that are very similar to the older son. 
Jesus is saying to the Pharisees that they have a choice. He has welcomed the tax collectors and the sinners into his circle, just as the father in the parable welcomes the younger son back home with open arms. Are they, the Pharisees, also still going to play the role of the older son? And Jesus is saying by implication to us as well that we too have a choice. Are we going to fall into the trap of being like the older son, following the master out of duty, out of the need to be seen to be doing the right thing? Are we slaving for him rather than realising the absolute grace of our father and the richness and the bounty of the gifts that he has given to each of us? Are we truly responding to them as we're called to do, following where Jesus has led in joy and in fullness of life, celebrating with those who return to the Father from far off, like the younger brother? We've heard, of course, that Alpha will be starting here at St Giles on the 27th, just as it will be in many other churches around the country over the coming week or two. And I'm sure we can all think of people who we could invite to come along to Alpha, whether, as I said before, whether colleagues, whether neighbours, whether friends, whoever they are, wherever they are. Some people who are distant from the Lord make a conscious decision on their own, like the younger son, to turn back and go to the father. But for others, they may need some encouragement to get them on the road there, or indeed someone to walk with them for a portion of the way. So I would ask all of you, for those of you who haven't got the couple of cards that were in the bulletin, do please pick them up. Take them home. Pray about who you can invite. If you can invite more, wonderful. If you don't feel on this occasion you can think of anyone, pray for those who are inviting someone and pray for the guests that we know are already coming. Just imagine the joyful celebrations that we'll have here when people come to Christ again or for the first time and what that will look like in heaven as well. Jesus leaves his story without a clear ending. Can you finish the story for him in that way?